tonight in the this evening Dhamma talk so me again oh. <laughs> going on again mm-hmm. and it's, uh, this uh, examining these experiences particularly get down to the core experience which is the key of awakening is a sense of me where it arises here and where it arises there it's kind of um, self-formation it arises here and it arises there internally, externally it causes um, uh, attraction and repulsion and confusion and uh, happiness and unhappiness, it's a creative, uh, recreative, resonating experience. So, uh, and it by itself, when we begin to understand it, then it is a way of conceiving it as a separate, substantially existing, coherent, independent entity just doesn't make sense. In order for there to be a here, there has to be a there. In order for there to be some kind of uh, experience of connection and even dissension and comparison and identification, in order for it to be that, there's got to be some kind of duality there, isn't there? In order to feel what is something, one has to compare it with something else. Mm. You know, it's like if, if you're if you're in, if you're ten feet under the water, you don't feel wet. Then when you come out of halfway in and half out of the water, you feel the experience called wetness. Well, you're right. If you're under the water, you don't feel wet. You're going to need to compare it with. So, uh, what is that sense of self internally, this self, or say if I look at one of these forms and say it's Mike or it's um, Letizia or something. Was that what's happening there? Is that just some a useful way of describing things? And then, um, what kind of feeling and inference and assumption and um, nervousness or whatever, what feeling goes into that? What's that about? How does it affect the relationships? Does it, it's bound to set up its own 
resonances, isn't it? So the relationship between people is certainly seem to be manifesting. Um, if it's seen in terms of self, it seems that then it, it it sets up these kind of resonances that I'm that at this particular moment in time when I'm saying the feeling and the idea I have about a person which is happening here for me is actually happening out there. It's separate. It's substantial. It exists by itself. And when one begins to comprehend these things in terms of Dhamma, we say, well, maybe there is uh, you know, enjoyment or aversion or confusion. That's happening here. That something's here, isn't it? That's what I can know. It's like that. It's this, so this... We're not hardening that up into I am always uptight or I am always this way or he is always that way or she does this or he does that. We're recognizing with an uptight. So just a very honest and a modest kind of experience because it's honest and it's actually saying what really is happening. It's modest and it's it's saying this is what's happening, you know. Not uh, not blaming, not praising, not... Uh, uh, feeling uh, um, ashamed of it, guilty of it, or infatuated with it. This is what's happening. This happens internally, that is, as one begins to experience the consciousness directed um, into one's own mind and so on. Again, you know, you get two people there the way I am, where I should be. The comparison isn't there. And in uh, <coughs> simple terms, what's kind of what's most conducive often is this sense of, you know, when when what what it takes to to be able to actually acknowledge what's going on without making it in, without taking up these positions, is a quality of trust. Mm. What we call that the basic uh, refuge uh, thing that we try to deepen and encourage is a, is, a, is a trusting experience, is a taking refuge, is a sense of shelteredness, a sense of okayness, a sense of here's where the blaming or running away ends. It's a calm place, a peaceful place, a place where one can actually come to terms with the conflicts and um, doubts and worries that one has. Um, yeah, it's because of this, because of that. And the experience or the, the way of perceiving things in terms of self in the Buddha's teaching is uh, transformed into the experience of conditionality, of mutual dependency, dependent arising, and dependent ceasing. Just the arising of things arises due to the arising of feelings, thoughts, visual perceptions, and so on arises because of there are conditions that support that. There are sense organs, there are material forms, and so on and so on and so on. And of course, when it comes down to it, the most powerful forces of dependent arising, the ones we really have some say over, are the emotions, 
the instincts, the persuasions, the assumptions of the heart, the inclinations of the heart. These are things that uh, wear, cause that continual footprint of our stress or our dis-ease is being imprinted on experience because of these underlying assumptions and tendencies that then get, keep getting projected out. And you keep experiencing things in that way. This is uh, saying uh, uh, a thief sees a saint as someone who's got pockets. <laughs> it's true, you know, they've got pockets, but, uh, you know, like, that's a true statement in a way, but it, it's, it's dependent upon that particular person's uh, inclinations and assumptions, isn't it? So this is an example of the, you know, the power of the mind to filter out and emphasize and exaggerate apparent reality into these self-perpetuating patterns which perpetuate tendencies. Don't let them just resolve. Don't let them pass away. Don't let them um, become clear. In a state, the state of, of uh, unawakeness, then, uh, then the, the, the teachings, the structure of the teachings, the structure of the, of the dispensation is on, inter, on mutual dependence. As an idea, it sometimes seems so remote. As a realization, of course, it's very profound. Um, the structure of the, of the dispensation, the structure of Buddhism is really, uh, the way the Buddha laid it down, is, is based on this. And so if you don't understand it, you begin to drop into it. And, and it begins to work on you. As it works on you, you, you begin to look at this kind of... Um, you begin to get a realisation of what mind and reality is about, where it's a kind of... you know, this ripple effect. We're more like pond than separate lumps. So you get this continual rippling effect. You get waves. And those waves can be because of Somebody throwing rocks in the in the in the pond can be the wind blowing over it. Yeah. Can be this, you know, the topology of the pond itself, kind of when it's got outcrops and things sticking up um, through the bed. It can be because you've got boats and fish moving around in it. So, in a, in a very as you contemplate your know, experience of consciousness, if the mind becomes, if the consciousness becomes quite clear. And still, then you, you recognize even one leaf dropping on the pond is going to create some kind of a tremble. There's nothing that is consciously experienced that does not resonate. That's the experience of it. That's how you know it's an experience. It resonates. So that resonance is therefore a sort of a, repeated, a repetitive pattern that ebbs and flows. And because that pattern ebbs and you know has there's a certain patterning there, the mental patterns that are patterns of awareness, that are patterns of behaviour, then the thinking mind sees a pattern and makes it into a lump. It makes it into an object rather than a pattern. So yes, there is a pattern of whatever it is, you know, um, happiness, unhappiness, um, celebration, indifference, but 
that's a pattern that occurs through supportive conditions. It's not self. It's not a separate lump. You can't take a wave out of the pond, stick it up on the dry land. And similarly with the, the kind, you know, the results of one's practice. You start thinking, oh, you know, I'm getting really good at this, I'm getting really good at this. This is when the wave, you know, you get this wave trying to get out onto land and walk around and show the other waves how good it is. <laughs> it just collapses, doesn't it? Yeah. So when we have a, uh, you know, you go to a three-month retreat, then you think, oh, this is, maybe it's going rather well. Mm-hmm. You look at the conditions to support it. A lot of, uh, a lot of uh, protection in a way, a lot of safeguarding, a lot of, um, you know, other people helping and contributing and people bringing food and these sorts of things. You know, so this sort of tremendous... Uh, Support to depend on tremendous amount of support, and it's it's, it's not much. um, You know, the things are just kind of a lot of time to practice on one's own to be to to calm down, meditation instructions, and so on. So then you take all that away. What have you got? So if you start to feel, you know, well, I'm really good. I don't need all this stuff anyway. I'm really good at this. This is when the wave starts to get out, try to get out on the band and walk around. Because the waves get a little way up the beach before they collapse. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also to honour and recognise that, yes, there are external supports, but there are also internal supports. It's not to... to, to, um, you know, to dishonor or denigrate oneself, yes, it's dependent on one's energy and one's one's aspiration and one's patience and one's kindness and these skillful comers. And these are also in dependency. You don't you don't dismiss that. You say yes, this process here is part of the process of dependent arising. It's not just all mute external conditions. I'm you know everything that I am is part of that. So that one can see that the good, and the supportive, and the negative, and the afflictive. And these are all, and when they can be experienced, not just thought of, be experienced as anatta. They are dhammas. They are patterns. They are not sankharas. They are not self. And the crucial difference is that uh, sankhara is kind of volitional, self-perpetuating quality, it's, it's kamma in other words that it will continue to go on and establish this experience of self in some realm some state of mind some personality being something high, low miserable or elated and that is uh, the only problem with it, it, it fundamentally is like the wave, it, it, it's bound to crumble. It must, you know, it takes, must take that particular shape. So this is not, um, you know, we're looking at anatta, and the, the whole tenure of the Buddha's teachings, it's not abstract moralizing, it's just pragmatic sense, like what actually lasts, what actually sustains, what actually is um, permanent and sustaining. And a sense, someone in a sense will go for that. Don't you don't want to 
So it's just like really being practical about it. And not to invest into things that must be impermanent. This is not a you know a dismissal or disapproval. It's just like good banking. <laughs> this of course has to be experienced. I mean these are just uh things, you know, guidelines you keep coming back to and then you check it out because of course the process is one where you know one can only really feel it, see what happens, go through the process of ebbing and flowing, up and downing, and then you begin to, as you map out a pattern of, of how you get caught, how you get attached, how you get confused, how, how come you're suffering now, and, and you, rather than see it, I am a suffering person, it's arisen because of these causes. And sometimes this is quite subtle because they're so embedded that you don't, one isn't attentive to them. And especially on the kind of level of assumptions and emotional emotional assumptions. Um, you know, we're not necessarily all that clued up because the assumption is so immediate, you don't, you don't check it, you don't see it. Everybody thinks that. Normal. So community life is a very helpful one for that, just to see that there's no such thing as normal. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be one, because one begins to be able to, to experience our abnormalities as just part of a pattern. They have a certain, certain charm to them. You know, it's like different different uh, different parts of the menu, the hors d'oeuvre and the piquant and the kind of tangy and the fruity, the meaty and the sour. (laughs) 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 Well, uh, the structure that this is um, the structure of the dispensation is um, the vinaya, the way of way of way of training. The way it means the way that breaks up, it breaks up the solidity. So it's the way that leads towards the, the breaking up of this kind of heavy solidity pattern, absolutely experience into something that's more flowing. And the flow is towards liberation, towards freedom. First of all, in terms of freedom from. Uh, heavy, afflictive, negative states, and then freedom from the sense of um, sense of self. So the, 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 the kind of the context of the life, the lifestyle the Buddha encouraged and, and presented, um, it has this twofold quality to it. It's got a kind of ethical and personal, and then something more sublime something transpersonal. And the vineyard is set up, you can always refer to things in this way when you're looking at the, the training and the, and the context of our lives. And it is based upon the uh, experience of dependent arising, that is if you, you do set up supportive conditions for calm, then that's what you get. You don't, you don't. Um, 
It's around that. And when you look at it, the, the social structure of it is one of, of interdependence. So fundamentally, you have the you have the dependence, if you like, on the Buddha. That means you, you incline towards that, you pick up that teaching. You open yourself up to it, you take it in, you work with it. Independence on the training, you have the sense of dependence on a teacher, and then the dependence on the lay people, the mendicant. So without these, if you look at these, you know, any of these, without these, where are you? And if you, you know, if you, if these are not what one wants to be part of, then you know, then there's no point. This isn't really a suitable situation or necessary. And when we look at the uh, the Buddha himself, is not a kind of fanatical um, uh, lawmaker. It seems that. He was, according to the the texts that are laid, that are account of his words, he was not particularly all fired up to get everything sorted out and be shaped up and drilled and ordered around. It was a kind of sergeant major type. But he said it was the teaching for some. There's some of the basic kind of inclinations he assumed people had. Like if you're a summoner, then your inclination is towards deathless towards something, towards awakening, towards realizing something lasting and peaceful and sublime. So you're not really, inclination is, you've got to the point where you begin to recognize that just kind of momentary sense experience is not what you really value. So that inclination to it in that way. And the, the, also that one is living in a way that's non-violent, um, the, the and one is living in a way that's um, celibate. It's not about um, passion. It's homeless. It's not about taking possession of things. And as you continue, you know, as you look at the, something, you look at the kind of fundamental structures. It helps you to get the particular little rules into perspective. Is the, the Buddha himself said, well, you know, if there's dispute over these little particular rules, it's not really an issue. But if there's some confusion over the general trend in the way, this is really a problem. And uh, apparently, even on his, um, his deathbed, he said, well, as regards to the minor details of the training rules, you know, if, you, if the Sangha feel like it, they can just abolish them if they don't think they're relevant anymore. So, uh, of course, unfortunately, Ananda himself was a bit, in a bit of a state, and he forgot to ask the Buddha what he thought the minor rules were. So, uh, <laughs> so ever since then, you've had this strange situation where um, some people have managed to abolish the minor and the major rules with gusto, and, <laughs> <laughs> and the training all together. Others, you know, the other extremes, you kind of get really uptight, that little... Things and you, you actually want to develop more and more little, little tiny rules so you can get even more going. Mm. But to be able to relate the, the 
the training rules to the general way is helpful because then there is that uh, recognition that all these particular training rules themselves are just judgments you know, made by the Buddha when particular specific incidents entered the context of the summoner's way. So, for example, if it affected the principle of, of dependency on the lay people, then he'd say, well, you know, people, don't, people get upset about this, they don't like this, the lay people get really, you know, feel very strong and this is wrong, well, let's not do it. You know, so that it wasn't, um, you know, that, that was very pragmatic, the Buddha. It wasn't a kind of, you know, it's an ability to, to recognize, well, when we're living in this situation, let's try to live in harmony. It's quite rather than, well, we'll just have to learn. <laughs> Some kind of righteousness state, yeah. and he said there are the ten um, reasons for establishing the party moraka, which is the, if you like, the, the kind of specific rules, the, uh, some of the specific rules that are recited, is um, for the welfare of the sangha, which means it actually nourishes and gives further life to the community. It vitalizes. It uh, it, um, it it uh, supports mindfulness. It supports contentment with simplicity. It supports forest dwelling. It supports you know, and it's, it it kind of establishes clear recognition of these as mutual standards. So in that way, when you have the welfare of the sangha. Then it, it may be, of course, depending on each individual might feel, well, I don't have any problems with that, I'm not attached to this, that, or the other, so it doesn't really know. I don't really need that particular training rule because it doesn't actually enter into my particular process. I don't have no, no problem with it. But then, you, then the wise reflection is, well, for the welfare of the Sangha, it establishes a good mark for other people, both the, you know, for the lay people and for the, you know, the monastics then, well, we'll do that. And that's a recognition of interdependence, isn't it? So even if, from a personal point of view, one is personally blameless, then from the point of view of interdependence, you say, well, we'll do it this way. So as the example of one of the Arahants, Kapina, I think it was, who um, said, oh, you know, uh, was... Um, Unsell as to whether it was necessary for him to turn up to these Patimoka recitations because he said, I haven't, you know, I'm an Arahant, I haven't actually committed any offences, I know all the training rules. And then the Buddha would say, Yeah, but it's still better if you come. And uh, various things like, you know, whether you eat in the evening or eat in, it doesn't really matter if you eat in the evening or eat in the morning. But um, the Buddha said, Well, let's all do it this way so there's a clear standard that everybody can agree on and just creates a sense of harmony. And it's simple, simple that way. That's for the welfare of the Sangha and the comfort of the Sangha, which is the second aspect of it. It means that when you've got something that you hold in common, there's a feeling of, of comfort because you know where you are. You don't have to keep rearranging things to suit everybody's tastes. And so there's a feeling of being able to relax and you feel there's a comfort there.
um, second. So those are the you know, five pairs. The second pair is then for the. Um, to help steady and support the people who's when the when the mind or the heart goes out of whack, and so you get uh, um, passions and attachments and irritations and fears. Then these training rules help to kind of support the mind so it doesn't get blown away by that. So, for example, things like sharing, sharing one's requisites, you know, the training in this helps to quell or support people who would feel intimidated or or left out. Obviously, things like um, you know, uh, behaviour in terms of Respect and and mutual respect and things of this nature will tend to help support people who get you know, angry, self, you know, when anger or selfishness or jealousy takes over, to support that, and then also to provide feeling of comfort and well-being for people who who don't have those particular problems. This is a, a third. Set is the set which is concerned with the um, the mind itself, that in oneself, with the trainings that help to to uh, provide a refuge from uh, the unwholesome influence of uh, sensuality, from personal uh, becoming and from ignorance. So the essential thing is, is that which always emphasizes the sense, sense, sensory definition of something, whether it looks beautiful or ugly, whether something tastes pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's warm or cold, soft or hard, these kinds of things. So as long as your mind keeps seeing things in that way, then it's like, you know, you're still looking at the pockets of the saint. So, because you see it like that, then those things become very dominant for you. When they become dominant for you, they take over. When they take over, you can't see any other side of it. You don't see the impermanence. You don't see the changeability. You don't experience the sphere and the realm of dispassion and quietness. You don't experience that. All you experience is, I've got it, now I haven't got it. That's nice, I want it. That's not nice, I don't want it. So the more that one my actually continues to take the sensual description of things, the sensual reactions to things as being actually what they are, then that's exactly what you get. That's, what, that's where you live. You live in that realm. And all you can ever get out of that realm is the ups and the downs. The ups are nice. Downs are not much good. But that that's that's as far as it goes. And if one has so ordinarily, you know, for a for a person living or in, in ourselves, also in a social context, that is it. So naturally we just look for what could be the most pleasant. Because we haven't actually understood or experienced or been instructed in something 
There's other than that, other than pleasant and unpleasant. So this is where, you know, that has to have, it has to be, you know, to realize one's, one practice is something that inclines beyond that. And you've got things that actually keep helping to nudge you away from that way of looking at things. So through the meditation, and this is where these trainings only become uh, valid or really valuable and significant as you as you develop the meditation. You do you can experience through the change of things, through the arising and ceasing of things. This that there is the realm in which things arise and cease. There is a kind of an awareness through which things pass and flow. There is a sphere of dispassion. There is that particular realm of experience. Things can be watched. Things can be let go of. There can be the experience of something, a feeling ending. There can be the experience of letting go of something pleasing. There can be the experience of being able to open up to something displeasing. When we do that, not denying the pleasant or the unpleasant, you reckon that wave passes through. That wave touches you and passes through. And then, not through rejecting or affirming, but just through experiencing. And you feel the results of that. The kind of the, the fulfillment and the gladness. You go back into the pond. Another major form of um, outflow is that which tends towards what's called being or becoming, which is this very um, self-view, if you like, that which establishes what I am, this is what I'm not. And our lives normally oscillate between that. This is what I am, this is what I'm not. This is what I can, this is what I can't do. I'm not good enough for this. Uh, I'm very good at that. And naturally, I want to be with the things I'm good at. I want to be in the affirmative positions. I want to be in those. And I don't want to be in the humiliated, uncertain things. Things I don't know. Things I'm not in charge and control. I don't want to be there. So those currents, those pushes, are rather like the sensual thing. They're self-fulfilling. As long as one's heart sees things in that way, that's what you get. You do get those experiences when you, you feel you are something, and those experiences when you feel you're nothing. Or maybe it's the other way around. And you think, I'm nothing. <laughs> oh, I'm something again. You know, it's an unpleasant something, isn't it? So quite a bit of our, our practice is really trying to work with this in terms of, say, duties and roles when one has to be something. You don't want to be at something. <laughs> yeah. And it come, when it comes down to it, we can come with this kind of, well, I don't need this isn't really good for my practice, or I didn't become a monk to do this, or this kind of thing. Actually, it comes down, I don't want to do this. <laughs> Yeah, 
you know, you can't actually start to examine some of the, the emotion behind his philosophical positions. You know, <laughs> it's not, I don't want to do this boring, stupid, tedious thing. I don't want to get dirty and wet. I don't want to have to get work hard. I don't want to have to think about things that I'm not interested in. I don't want to have to talk about things I'm not interested in. I don't want to be people I'm not interested in. I don't want to be me. <laughs> So therefore, when the mind, you know, because you're in a dependent situation, when that cause and condition is arising, magic, you get a world that confirms it. And but similarly, if you actually challenge that, it collapses. The wave collapses. So if we actually, you know, the, the thing, the, the magic about practice can be when you can enter into situations that. You know, which seem to be one way. Right? This is a kind of, you know, frightening situation. You enter into it. No, it's not a frightening situation. It's an interesting situation. Yeah. Mm. If I just to over the time, like my original inclination was very much one of. Um, a, Sort of being on my own and practicing on my own, so then I could easily see uh, group situations as a waste of time, really. Couldn't concentrate, so that's what they are. And uh, you know, well, in situations where people are talking about them, themselves and their feelings as being, you know, people going on about this, that, and the other, so that's what they are. When I go to these, you know, meetings I talk about business and stuff like that, you know, this kind of worldly stuff. So that's what it is. You get exactly what you want. <laughs> but then the, the challenge of it is actually, you see, well, you know, there's a situation arises, and maybe it's a situation that is in accordance with the, the vineyard, it's not against the vineyard, it's something that actually arises because of, of real um, causes, something required to happen because of this particular life, either living in a community or living in a context with, um, you know, needs of the society or to, to, to cope with things, to, 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 to manage things and so on, it arises so, you know. And then can we actually enter into that without prejudging it? Say, well, yes, you know. And see what it does, see what happens, see what it, it, if it moves things, if it actually even highlights some of one's stubborn habits and stubborn dismissiveness or one's infatuations. Infatuation means being something, having a position, being in control, being happy, being this way, that way, whether that, however that occurs, or with the experience of not being something, being at the end of the line, being left out, not having to say, you know? And then, aren't those just inevitable, for all of us, just inevitable flows of the current? If you actually hold one of them, it becomes a self and it actually perpetuates. So you find yourself in a self perpetuating experience that then projects a world around it. I'm always here, nobody ever listens to me. They're all a bunch of people who don't want to listen to me. You know? So that's what it comes out of, doesn't it? Or, 
you know, say for me, perhaps, I'm always here, I'm always saying things, why else I keep saying things, there's a lot of people who just want me to say things. <laughs> so, you know, you can make it like that. And then to, to actually challenge some of these experiences. Right? And these inclinations, so that then, even if that is a particular flow of the current, there is a situation when one is actually being nothing. It's just... It's just, it's just a being, it's just something that's occurring rather than a person that's fixed. Then we can let it occur. Being something is all right, being nothing is all right. Because they, they are just like the sense experience. This is the realm we're in. We're in a realm of sensuality and becoming. But it's to actually experience them as waves that move through you rather than either as, as things you can get hold of or things you can keep away from you, either trying to fill yourself up with them or trying to protect yourself from them. So in our lives, I think we could probably witness those inclinations. Self-protective, don't you know? Being too delicate about this, that and the other. And then getting glued onto kind of subtle sensual things or gross sensual things. But the training and the way of interdependency means it just keeps putting you through times when you're something and times when you're nothing. Times when you, you know, because of summer you have to be there and do this and be responsible for that and, and times when it's not that way. Times when it's kind of you have delightful, pleasant, lovely things happening, beautiful, tasty food, nice weather, this, that, and the other, and times when it's not like that. Generally, the food is too good here. <laughs> but it's all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the other, this is a, these are, this is kind of a very core issue for for us all, I'm sure, around these things. And the the the, the, the training, particularly just dispelling the ignorance, just that accumulates is the third outflow, which actually doesn't let you even really acknowledge or witness these flows. So you don't even see the, don't even understand, or you don't recognise, you can't acknowledge it. Mm. And I think one thing this training does is it does actually make you more aware of I don't like those kind of funny energies and breathe too hard. And come and <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you get really quite. One thing this training does is it does actually make you more aware of, of the. because it does peel off a lot of the ways in which one can actually not acknowledge the amount of passion that goes on in terms of being, not being, and sensuality, because it's all. It's all, you know, it's all so tiny. And how you can get incredibly passionate about tiny little things is uh, is part of the uh, wonder of it all, part of the humbling of it all. You kind of 
glued on to the tiny, some tiny little crumb of sensuality, which you know is only going to sustain you for about 0.3 of a second. <laughs> and it becomes vitally important. Am I right? Or some little kind of bit of territory. Something you've got or in charge of. And defended. We're just having to share, be together, share space together. We don't like those kind of funny energies and he breathes too hard. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you get really quite tetchy over little things. So that helps in a way just to, to, to show, you know, that there's something underneath it. Things where you know when you look, sometimes when people come here and think, well, it's marvelous, you know. You know, living in the monastery, you don't have to do this. It's wonderful. You know, boss bawling at you. You know, to kind of hassle off to work. You know, to scrape for a living. You don't have to kind of deal with the people talking utter gibberish. You don't have, to have radio blasting you next door. You don't have to this, that, and the other. It's blissful here. They say, yeah, yeah, but we don't get enough chocolate. It <laughs> <laughs> must be wonderful being a lay person, you can eat all the chocolate you like. The other aspects of the training is that they, um, that which gladdens the uh, late, um, people who, are, who have not yet seen the teaching. So it generally means that the more like the general public or the lay people, but more or less any, anybody who is still kind of hadn't really seen it, it kind of encourages them, it causes them to feel interested. And for those who are interested, it, it steadies and supports and gives them happiness. So without this happiness, without this interest and enthusiasm, without feeling inspired, without feeling happy in ourselves, in a context that we feel trust and, and respect for, and we feel we are trusted and respected, then we don't, we don't grow. We're always, our roots don't find the, the, the water, they don't find the, the, the fertile ground. And it's very interesting to see in this country, even you know, people who are not haven't heard much of Buddhism, don't don't meditate even, you know. And you you are just going out, you go walking, and to see people recognised because of the way one's conducting oneself, oh, this is worthy. People kind of want to help you, like some kind of nun or monk, some kind of religious person, you know. Good for them. That, that, you know, just because one is actually calm and collected in one's demeanour, and there's a there's a gentleness and a peacefulness. So that's what we're looking at, really. There's this lovely saying in one of the in the in the suttas where 
I've forgotten who it is, but somebody's saying, you know, you look around at some of these, some of these recluses and they look really dreadful, you know. They look really wretched, a miserable bunch. And then when you see the, the disciples of the, of the Buddha, the sense of well-being in them. And you see that they see these people, uh, they see these, uh, who have just been sleeping out in the, on bunches of straw, it says, they're getting up and they stretch themselves and they look, they look happy. And they collect, go out for arms around, they look like they've got a sense of composure and well-being. And then, you know, this is just that. Because yeah. that statement, that one is actually feels comfort and well-being with a, something where it's not about becoming, not about sensuality. That's a very interesting and inspiring uh, presentation, isn't it? Suddenly, because then it says, well, look, you know, you are in yourself capable of bringing around your welfare through working on what's most intimately here, your own intentions, your own mind, your own heart. So that that sphere of dependency becomes something that's not just external, but most powerfully and most significantly here, approachable. You have the, you have the responsibility, you have the, the possibility in your life. So quite a lot of the, the training rules are just about that, that which, which is recognizable by people, um, gives them something to see and conceive and note acts as a mark in the mind and that which actually sustains it and builds it up. And further, for the... in order to really uh, practice the Dhamma, one cultivates these training principles. Because it is a, uh, a lifestyle, it's a very total kind of thing. And it, it, in order to practice Dhamma, to really practice Dhamma, it means that you have to bring everything out, really. You can't leave stuff just lying around in corners of your being. You've got to bring it all out. And it certainly all comes out. Um, means you... It's, it's out, out there, so it's a way of, of clearing out, of bringing up the karmic tendencies tendencies towards sensuality, tendencies towards uh, um, being and non-being, tendencies of aversion and attraction, of doubt and happiness, you know, the pleasant and the unpleasant, actually something where all these aspects of one's own specific takes on those come up and are resolved. That can only really occur in a situation where it touched in many directions, so that when light falls this way, it leaves a shadow here. When light falls that way, it leaves a shadow there. When it's light all round, there's nowhere to hide. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's the idea of it. So a very thorough kind of thing, which is training in detail, training in small details, training in, in the larger aspect of it. So that, that then it is. Put, is said is perfected, it's purified, it's fully lived out. (sighs) 
is fully lived out, there is the experience of realization. The experience of realization is the essential gift to humanity to transmit, to keep alive for the faith and the welfare of human beings who have not yet been born. So just consider this, that sense of um, mobility. Dealing with your own process, it can be, of course, you know, in terms of actually really looking at one's own process, you know, you have to be very personal, which is true, but also to see it in the context of for the welfare of, of future beings. Because if you see it, in your own context, that's fine. But sometimes, you, you know, it's like you don't get the you don't get the patience and the breadth. You can be too intense, too intensely personal. You don't see the breadth of it, the broad significance of it. Practicing for yourself, only you know, from that particular point of view, only goes so far as far as I can experience it. Trying to think, well, I'm all right. I don't really care anymore. You know. Trying to sustain motivation, particularly over a long period of time, when you think, you know, this stuff goes on forever, just learn to live with it, or it doesn't really matter, or I can't do it. Trying to actually, and then what it takes you know, to, to really to practice, you see that there must be so much giving, you know, making the heart capable of giving, encouraging the heart to give attention, to give warm-heartedness, to give patience, to, to try again, to give time. It's a lot of giving is required. And then when you get into some kind of corner, sometimes you just don't want to, you can't do it. You can't do it for yourself because you can't even give yourself enough worth to feel that you're worthy of practicing for. And then you know, that feeling of, well, I, I can make my life a little bit better for other people less of a blight on humanity. <laughs> and uh, it comes down to it, I, I, I think that myself. Still, sometimes those times you think, well, at least I've done something good with my life. It's not been a complete write-off. You know, when the mind goes careening out of, out of the sphere of, of blessedness and wholesomeness, it gets kind of cantankerous grumpy, fed up. And the whole, you know, the dependency principle means that that rave pattern, then again, you know, you're very vulnerable to those influences because they don't actually have a sustained core self. So it just becomes or feels those influences. I haven't got a kind of a, a photograph to relate to. So it's like that. And then... You know, the vulnerability of it is part of its power because then you have to be with that. You haven't got a kind of self-image that you can shrug all this stuff, stuff off under, bury under. So you have to feel it. And it's vulnerable. And uh, it's as painful. And it's, in its own way it's as real. And I find myself that sometimes it's just a kind of core, you know, core, 
grounding in trust. It's not a thought anymore. It's not an action anymore. It's not something that I think or remember or do. It's just something that's a basic ground of trust. You just be with that, let that pass. And there's a ground of giving. Who, having been encouraged, coaxed, pushed, and uh, inclined towards doing that over many years, living this life. So those things have become natural inclinations, natural uh, dhammas, natural patterns. But um, the hindrances, they contain the hindrances. Hindrances don't destroy them. There aren't any hindrances, but the hindrances are contained within that. And because of that, they, they are the, the boundaries that cause the breakup. That is, the, the, the pond does not move outside, the waves don't move outside of the boundaries of the pond. And then they, they hit the shore and they die down. It's not particularly a pleasant experience, but it, I think, you know, after a bit of time you give up on, imagine it's always going to be a pleasant experience, or the unpleasant ones are somehow wrong. Namely, the quality of experience that you most trust is its impermanence and its selflessness, and those are unshakable characteristics of existence. If this is not just known, but trained in, so it's not an idea in the mind, but a way in which the mind is based and settled, then there is no there's no going back, there's no breaking up. The beauty of it is, though, you know, talking about in this way, then refer to you know training systems that particularly set up and in the specification are about the summer life. But the beauty of it is that you begin to more understand the principles of it, and so these things are not about these are about human beings. These are the principles of things that human, all human beings can attune to. This is not a religious order. These are principles that all human beings can, can pick up, can relate to, and can witness and, and, and take refuge in and experience those characteristics and what they signify. This for your reflection. <laughs>